today is the uh, 28th of March 2017 and we're going to continue to uh, read from passages, read passages from Thinly Norbo's White Sail Crossing the Waves of Ocean Mind to the Serene Continent of the Triple Gems. And this is, this is the fourth um, in a series of talks reading from this text. And we've been looking at the relationship between love and faith and um, where, where we define love as being um, our benevolence towards other sentient beings, including those less fortunate than ourselves. And faith is um, the benevolent feelings we, we have towards sublime beings, such as Buddhas, or ancestors, enlightened guides in our life. And one of the, the statements that we've already read um, from Dinli Norbo is that where he says, love and faith have the same essence of deep caring. Um, so we've been looking into how these two are related. taking up a passage where he's talking about something that may block our ability to um, have faith in others. He says, many people cannot accept the idea of having faith in others because of their own ego. This idea causes the threatening conception that others are better than they are. Even though they say they believe in the idea of equality for others, their distaste for the conception of superiority of others actually means they do not want to feel unequal themselves. What makes this ridiculous is that even if they hold these ideas strongly, there is always an unavoidably unequal condition between all beings. That is why there is always conflict and there has never been and will never be evenness in the general scenery of this world. I think a lot of us may resist this statement quite strongly. Um, he says there's this unavoidably unequal condition between all beings. And I think what he's really talking about here is that we each have our own individual karma. And so we are different from each other. Um, you are taller than me, or you can run faster or have better eyesight. I may be able to uh, speak English better than you, or I might, ha I might own more stuff. But often we go from just this, these bare statements of fact to value judgments. And this is where we probably, we probably resist this notion that um, we might be unequal I think this is also something that's very strong in our culture. Um, we, 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 we call ourselves a strong, a strongly egalitarian society, and we have m many positive associations with that. Um, but if we look more closely, we will find that we're not as 
as egalitarian as we as we might think and certainly over the last 25 years if you think in terms of, of just rich and poor that that's that um, egalitarian society has been greatly eroded so we resist we resist um, may may because of our cultural um, attitudes we may resist the thought strong quite strongly that there might be people who are, have more spiritual insight than we do but our diversity is a fact we're different from others in many different kinds of ways it's one of the the perennial topics that are present in um, in the koans Um, one of these is called um, Two Monks Roll Up the Blinds and um, in this um, the two monks come forward and, and roll up the, some blinds at a signal from a master and then he says one has it the other does not the master is Master Hogan in Japanese or Fa Yan in Chinese what is he saying here One has it and the other does not. So, in, in as so far as we are different, we're not equal. At this point in time and space, in myriad ways, we're different from each other. But then, at the same time, we are equal. If you, if you regard us from the point of view of Buddha nature, there's a, a famous uh, statement that the Buddha makes in the Nirvana Sutra, where he says, all sentient beings have the Buddha nature. And here he's talking about all, all human beings, but also all animals and plants and um, even inanimate things. Yasutani Roshi, when he's talking about this, uh, mentions Master Dogen, who, who says uh, all sentient beings, what this means is that all sentient beings are Buddha nature itself and nothing else. And so from this point of view, we could say there's no difference between um, you and me, or between um, being a good person and a criminal for that matter. A little bit more on this from Yasutani Roshi.
He's trying. He's here explaining the nature, uh, what what Buddha nature is. And he he takes up one of the most fundamental characteristics of of Buddha nature to try and explain it, uh, and and he calls it here ku, which is um, the Japanese word for shunyata, emptiness. And he says this is a condition of no <coughs> fixed entity, or in other words, of selflessness or self-naturelessness. And he mentions a scholar who, who has called this, this shunyata the theory of non-entity. He says, ku is the essence of all existence. The very best, simplest, and most direct expression which proves this fact is one of the sayings of Nagarjuna. All dharmas are the result of causes. I call them ku. So all phenomena are the result of causes. I call them emptiness. He says most other religions um, believe in a creator, declaring that everything is made by him. If my understanding is correct, this is true among some people of China, it is also true of Judaism, Christianity, Islam and Hinduism. Buddhism, however, teaches that all phenomena are the result of the law of causation. If the cause changes, there is a corresponding cha change in the effect. If the cause disappears entirely, then the effect naturally vanishes. Therefore, no phenomenon has a fixed entity of its own. If I were to explain this teaching using some more concrete examples, I might say that a good man does not have the specific entity, the good. He may become a bad man according to circumstance. A bad man has no specific entity, the bad. If the cause changes, he may become a good man. The same may be said of poor persons and rich persons, healthy persons and sick persons crude and civilized persons, or of happiness and unhappiness, peace and war, heaven and hell. So none of these are intrinsic or fixed. He also gives the example of uh, carbon, which could be um, charred wood or it can, if um, subjected to other kinds of, of uh, conditions, it can be a diamond. It's hard to think of two things more unlike each other and yet their difference is, is, comes from uh, different causes and conditions, different conditions really. The cause is the same, it's, it's the carbon, carbon um, element. The main point is that nothing has a fixed entity of its own. Everything is in its immediate state temporarily by reason of particular causes. And this state of non-specificity is called ku, emptiness. One of the primary aims of Buddhism is that we experience this fact of ku directly and actualize it in our daily life. To believe Buddha nature, to understand Buddha nature, to practice in order to see it clearly and finally, to infuse it into our daily life. That is Buddhism and that is all.
My teacher, Harada Roshi, would always draw a circle on a blackboard at the beginning of every lecture and say that the universe is one. The, the third patriarch, Ganshi, wrote in his uh, Believing in Mind, it is perfect, it does not have any deficiency, nor does it have any, uh, anything superfluous. This is another translation of our lines from our Affirming Faith in Mind that we chant. The way is perfect like vast space, where there is, there is no lack and no excess. Perfect. It says, all existences are perfect as they are. This perfection is demonstrated as a circle. The leg of a crane is long and is perfect in its length, whereas the duckleck's leg is short and is perfect in its shortness. Perfection does not mean that we should try to shorten the crane's leg or lengthen the duck's leg in order to make each of them conform to our preconceived notion of a more pleasing appearance. The real meaning of perfection is that things are perfect is that things are perfect as they are. The tall person is perfect as tall. The short person is perfect as short. It is not necessary for a short woman to wear high heels. The black person is perfect as he is, and the white person is perfect as he is. The elephant is perfect as it is. The ant, though small, is perfect as it is. An ant cannot do things which an elephant can do, but neither can an elephant do the things which ants can do. There is no reason for a wealthy person to be haughty because he is wealthy, nor is there any reason for a poor person to feel inferior. Both are perfect as they are. Although some of the old patriarchs expressed their perfection by sitting, we can express our perfection also by walking, by sleeping, in fact by all our actions. All sentient beings are primarily Buddha, really means this perfection. When a person truly understands this, she will never have any reason to complain or to be discontent. For then, no matter what kind of situation she may find herself in, she can live peacefully with gratitude that she is able to work for the sake of others. This devotion is the life of the Buddha, and to learn this is the life of the Buddhist. Some people, however, are always complaining about their situation, so naturally they cannot appreciate their perfection. I mentioned last last week that um, this accords with also with the teaching of Thich Nhat Hanh both Yasutani Roshi and Thich Nhat Hanh use the, the um, analogy of waves and water and this comes from one of the sutras and I um, looked this up and got this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh um, because he has such a, um, a way of uh, putting these complex uh, teachings 
into uh, a very simple and accessible form that we can really grasp. So here's, here's what Thich Nhat Hanh says about this, about, uh, about us and Buddha nature. When you look at the surface of the ocean, you can see waves coming up and going down. You can describe these waves in terms of high or low, big or small, more vigorous, more beautiful or less beautiful. You can describe a wave in terms of beginning and end, birth and death. That can be compared to the historical dimension. In the historical dimension, we are concerned with birth and death, more powerful, less powerful, more beautiful, less beautiful, beginning and end and so on. Looking deeply, we can also see that the waves are at the same time water. A wave may like, may like to seek its own true nature. The wave might suffer from fear, from complexes. A wave may say, I am not as big as other waves, or I am oppressed, or I am not as beautiful as the other waves, or I have been born and I have to die. The wave may suffer from these things, these ideas. But if the wave bends down and touches her true nature, she will realize that she is water. Then her fear and complexes will disappear. Water is free from the birth and death of a wave. Water is free from high and low, more beautiful and less beautiful. You can talk in terms of more beautiful and yes, less, less beautiful, high or low, only in terms of waves. As far as water is concerned, all these concepts are invalid. Our true nature is the nature of no birth and no death. We do not have to go anywhere in order to touch our true nature. The wave does not have to look for water because she is water. We do not have to look for God, we do not have to look for our ultimate dimension or nirvana because we are nirvana, we are God. You are what you are looking for, you are already what you want to become. You can say to the wave, my dearest wave, you are water. You don't have to go and seek water, your nature is the nature of non-discrimination, of no birth and no death of no being and of no non-being. Practice like a wave. Take the time to look deeply into yourself and recognize that your nature is the nature of no birth and no death. You can break through to freedom and fearlessness this way. This method of practice of no birth and no death will help us to live without fear and it will help us to die peacefully without regret. Seeing the side of equality, the water, um, helps us <coughs> to accept and work skillfully with that other side, the side of the wave our differences, our inequalities. 
we can accept them more fully because we can recognize that they are adventitious. They're just the result of um, a bunch of conditions. I have a certain life and then things will change. The meaning of faith, this is going back to our main text, the meaning of faith is to see qualities in others that are much more wonderful than and superior to one's own. Just simply to be able to do this, to see clearly other people's good qualities and rejoice in them is a, is a great gift. goes on to say there are three quiet kinds of faith. The faith without reason that makes the mind clear, like an innocent child who is delighted with pure phenomena inside a beautiful temple. The faith of desire to receive superior qualities and the faith of complete belief in sublime beings without doubt, so that one can receive their blessings and become the same as they are. So just to look at these three, these three kinds of faith, the faith without reason that makes the mind clear, like an innocent child who is delighted with the pure phenomena inside a beautiful temple. So you can imagine taking a, a two or three year old into a beautiful temple and just carrying the child around so that it sees the murals and the decorations and the gold and the Buddha figures. And you can just imagine that child does not um, have any any particular beliefs or much understanding but is just able to just appreciate with a sense of wonder um, and delight what is there in that temple and this kind of this kind of um, mind is is also greatly admired in Zen it's really all, the, the mind of a of a fool, just wide open, um, no agendas, no, no access to grind. Innocent. Second one, the faith of desire to receive superior qualities. This is also important that it's, it's not enough just to, to uh, hear the teaching. There also has to be an aspiration, an aspiration to um, evolve, to, to realize the truth. Otherwise we won't, won't have any direction, we won't have a sense of, 
of, um, of, our, of purpose in our choices, in the choices we made. And the thirdly, the faith of complete belief in sublime beings without doubt, so that can, one can receive their blessings and become the same as they are. This is probably more, uh, more rare to find this kind of unreserved faith. He continues, in order to recognize our wisdom qualities, we must depend on outer positive circumstances, which in this case means meeting those who can show the correct way to do this. Without faith or guidance, it is impossible to know how to do this in the right way. We must have faith in order to open the quality of our Buddha nature through having faith in teachers who show us the correct way until we have full confidence, the outer object of faith joins with our own inner Buddha. Um, yes, Tani Roshi also talks about, um, about the same thing. He talks about th there being um, three different kinds of Buddha nature, and the first one is is Buddha nature that he's already been talking about here. This this um, um, empty, um, flowing reality that that underlies everything. He says, literally, it means the fundamental cause that we have the marvelous capacity to become Buddha. But then he, he talks about two other kinds of Buddha nature. The second one um, is called Ryo and Busho in Japanese. And, it, and this Ryo means to realize Busho is, is Buddha nature. And it's not it's not enough just to have the potential, we also have to have um, this, this ability to realize Buddha nature. And then the third one is that there have to be the right conditions. In other, in other words, nothing's going to happen unless we get guidance, if we get shown um, how to proceed. So this is the third type. And it means this enin busho means cooperating cause Buddha nature. In other words, it's something in our environment that helps us. But then he says, after all, self and others are not two separate entities. So if there's something outside us, it surely exists within us too. And so really the, this, this notion of, of inner and outer is it's kind of a false dichotomy. Things seem to be coming from the outside, but they're really corresponding to things on the inside too. But the point is here to bring these different things together, to, to bring that potential we have to become a Buddha together with our ability to realize that and uh, seeking out the help we need in our environment. 
um, to, to help us to realize our true nature. As, as, as um, the Ninorba puts it, the outer object of faith joins with our own inner Buddha. Norbu continues, what is learned from practice causes unshakable faith and is always uncontrived. But if we only have curiosity without faith, we will not be as interested in actual practice as we will be in inquiring, acquiring other people's ideas, which just add to our own fragmented and inert conceptions. Even if we are receiving, studying, learning and thinking about teachings, we will not have positive spiritual experience without having faith and without practicing them. Through thinking that we know more than others, there is only the danger of building an extreme arrogance, the extreme arrogance of a false scholar's ego. Whatever is known by an ordinary intellectual mind is changing and will be exhausted because it is changing. Ordinary ideas that are disconnected from wisdom mind cannot illuminate unending knowledge. Without a vast point of view, even ideas about Dharma can be misused to support our samsaric ego. In this way, even spiritual qualities can easily turn into the opposite. It is very difficult to have actual faith. He goes on to talk about how if we cling too tightly to our knowing, then what we already know can get in the way of our uh, opening up to what we don't yet know. This is very much the teaching of Zen, too. Attachment is the seed of all obscurations. Even when we cannot recognize wisdom qualities due to the karmic obscuration of our belief in tangible reality, we must still decide that this is only because we are not perceiving what is actually there. We must believe strongly that even though we seem to be disconnected, we can connect. When we are in darkness, we have to go toward the lamp to light it, and then the lamplight shines back on us. We must use effort, since even faith depends on intention. With faith, we can unveil the essence of the Dharma. It's a beautiful image here that if we're in the dark and we're, we're needing light, we have to go towards that lamp while still in the dark in order to turn it on, and then the light comes back to us. This is, this is really, it's talking here of what we might call in English a leap of faith, of, of moving um, before we've got any guarantees. And it really is a question of, of allowing ourselves to be open. We must still decide that this is only because we are not perceiving what is actually there. To admit to ourselves, to, to recognize that we may not be seeing the whole picture. 
that we aren't seeing the whole picture, that our, that our view is limited. And then to seek a wider view, to seek illumination. But that seeking means seeking in the darkness. Think of something that um, Einstein once said when he was asked how he worked and he said, how do I work? I grope. It says, the intention to have faith creates faith. A clear intention is extremely important in all dharma because it focuses energy and defines our aim so that we can attain it. Without intention, energy is wasted, diffused and lost, preventing any accomplishment. If we have the strong intention to practice in order to reach enlightenment, we can dedicate all of our activity towards this intention. He says, some people who start to practice say that they don't feel anything and so they stop. And this is because their main intention is to create present feelings and happiness in this life rather than to attain enlightenment, which is um, unending, beyond momentary feeling. Even though emotions change, and whatever changes is not valuable. If some people do not immediately feel better, they lose their faith. This happens because of the habit of believing in the importance of temporary feelings and not believing in non-substantial wisdom that comes through practice. They do not realize that the weakness of their practice is not from any fault of Dharma, but, the, but only the fault of their own intention, lack of faith, and the ripening of previous negative karma that prevents them from practicing. Yet even if they stop practicing, they will not have an antidote for the unpleasant emotions and their unfortunate karma will continue. Instead of withdrawing from practice, they must confront their obstacles in order to be released from them to attain enlightenment. Even if they wish to have positive emotions in this life, they can create them by continuing to practice which causes positive phenomena. Of course, we, the one thing that we, we, we receive no guarantees about is when this will happen. This is where the faith becomes so important because we certainly don't usually get the results we want when we want them. Our, our efforts um, to be effective have to be open-ended. And this is where a faith also in the continuity of our mind is so helpful. Because we don't even know what we will achieve within this lifetime. And so having at least the openness to the idea that, that our efforts, the momentum of our efforts will continue from this life into the next, um, can, can help us to stay the course in this life.
Emotions naturally become positive and the mind becomes stronger through the energy of intention and the commitment of faith. By not following after the first instance negative emotion, but immediately trying to change it by thinking of Buddhas and watching, the second instant becomes positive and the first instant is gone. Mind is only deluded when it is dualistic. Soul awareness mind is emptiness and does not remain anywhere. By abiding in the recognition of non-dualistic mind, negativity, negativity does not exist. I think what he's saying here is something similar to, to what is said in the Diamond Sutra, where it says, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. He instructs us to think of Buddhas and watch. We could say to think of Mu or, or what and to watch. What, what is it right now? What is the nature of the breath right now? And through this, we don't get stuck in our delusions. Skipping, skip, skipping forward a few pages here. He says, if we want to receive the blessings of enlightened awareness, we only have to increase our faith and devotion. The blessings of Dharma never decrease and are always present to connect with us. As we said before, it's like like a, a radio broadcast that we have to just tune our dial to, to pick up on. When we practice in order to recognize this, we must realize that when blessings are received, they must be contained and not scattered. Discussing practice with one's teacher can help untie the mind. However, without having wisdom confidence that is not affected by circumstances, when inexperienced practitioners talk casually about practice to other ordinary people, it only creates material conceptions about what is wrong and right. This can cause obstacles for receiving the blessings of practice, disturbing our energy by creating conflict and contradiction. Since the purpose of practice is to develop wisdom energy, we must contain this energy with a clear, simple, single mind. It is very difficult to sustain radiant inner light without being secret about one's practice. In this way, without dispersing it, we can preserve and deepen wisdom energy as it arises. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, guidelines for, for coming to Dogsan is not to talk about it with others. And this is the point that, that Norbu is, is um, making here about about not not loosely talking with others about uh, our practice but to have a kind of um, reticence and and real modesty because often there'll be we may have some um, 
unconscious um, ego reason for for talking about our practice. Doesn't mean you can't have conversations about practice with with your Dharma brothers and sisters, but to be careful about about how we talk. Um, really. Uh, be sure that what we're going to say is going to be helpful and not create um, confusion in the other person or, or um, that, that other person thinking, thinking that practice has to be this way or that when it's different for different people. If we want to have faith, we must have the intention to make strong effort. In Dharma, it is necessary to make a complete commitment and to give one's life. Since everything in ordinary existence is temporary, created from habit and continuously changing, the more we try to do, the more it becomes essenceless. We must think deeply about this and about what is actually true and meaningful. Since the nature of mind is unobstructed, Whatever we aim for occurs. By acknowledging this and through the experiences that automatically come from strong commitment, we must practice with the resolution to know our own minds and to change ourselves and other beings toward enlightenment. There's, there's a lot here in this, in this uh, paragraph. This first point um, is about making strong effort. And, and the requirement for really strong, even complete commitment to the practice, to be willing to give one's life for it. There are, there are um, many stories of, um, in, the, in, the, in the koans about, about this. I think of um, one of the most shocking is being um, Hui Ko, the, the, uh, coming to Bodhidharma, the um, first ancestor of, of Chan and the second ancestor in the story. Um, and Hui Ko comes and asks for the teaching, but he's repelled by Bodhidharma. Um, and finally, after standing in the, in the deepening snow outside Bodhidharma's cave, um, Hui Ko, Ko we're told, cuts off his arm and presents it to, Buddha, to Bodhidharma as a way of expressing his, his commitment, his, his um, deep longing for the Dharma. And we don't know if this actually happened uh, or whether he had lost his arm in some other way and then in his, in later in life this legend grew up around how he lost his arm because of the power of his, his practice and his presence, that's quite possible that that's what happened. But the story is still pointing to um, a truth about our practice, uh, that it, it's, we have to be willing to um, 
cut off what is no longer life-giving to us. There's um, a film that came out a few years ago which was made about it, the true story of, of a, um, a, a young man who fell down a crevasse and, and on his way down he loosened some of the, the boulders in this, in this narrow um, like slot canyon, I think it was in New Mexico or Arizona, and he ended up at the bottom of this crevasse with a huge boulder pin, pinning down his arm. And eventually um, he realizes that the only way that he can live uh, is to cut off his arm. And so he does, but really what is he cutting off? He's cutting off what is holding him back. He's cutting off what's already lifeless, what's superfluous. One of the, the extraordinary things about this story is um, that he, ha uh, when he's getting to the point where he does this, he has a dream, and he dreams of uh, of holding a baby, and he's not even in a relationship at this point, let alone um, married. But um, this 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 dream that he has later comes true. After he's after he's come out, but the sense of a new life of of something to live for is one of the things that 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 um, enables him to have the courage to to. Um, sever his arm so he can he, he can be uh, climb out of this canyon and live goes on um, Norbert after after this bit about commitment he goes on to say something quite quite um, remarkable he says Um, he, well, he first he says about thinking deeply about what is what is important, what is meaningful, what is true in our lives, and what gives us life. And then he says, since the nature of mind is unobstructed, whatever we aim for occurs. Since the nature of mind is unobstructed, whatever we aim for occurs. We may not think that everything we aim for occurs, but in some deep way, um, what we truly wish for does occur. And all the more reason then to, to uh, connect with, to articulate as best we can our deepest, our purest aspirations, and to serve those
The deepest meaning of the teaching is not the form or aspect of any particular teaching, but the meeting of the teaching with the mind in order to open wisdom mind. Actually, everything is teaching since everything is phenomena and all phenomena are teaching if that is how they are used. Sublime beings can teach anything because wisdom mind is unobstructed and reflects everything through unconditional compassion. Buddha can be anything. And this is very much what we find in the stories of the masters, that um, anything can be the teaching, anything can be the trigger for uh, our mind to open, to awaken. The Buddha awakens when he sees Venus in the morning sky. There's, a, there's a, another master who, who awakens when a, a stone hits a hollow piece of bamboo. Another who's, who sees bubbles in his urine when he pees in the snow. But all of these, uh, what, what is needed in all of these cases is a mind that doesn't know anything, that's wide open. Very last um, quote here. The compassionate giving love of sublime beings is always without expectation, never causes regret, and always connects us since it is unceasing. Through previ previous karmic obscurations, we may not recognize this actual continuous love, but without doubting, if we try to, with deep faith to increase the source of this love, which is the unconditioned awareness of our own wisdom mind, love arises naturally. It all comes back to our own mind. And what we turn to, what we, what we pay attention to, what we open ourselves to. Later he quotes another master who said, whatever brings benefit to sentient beings brings benefit to the victorious ones. That's the, the enlightened ones. So therefore, as Buddha said, I myself and all sentient beings share the same suffering and happiness. Through this quality of the true nature of sublime beings, may you protect beings from suffering. It struck me how much this is like the Christian teaching, where um, Christ says at one stage, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one, to one of the least of, of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And he's talking here about helping the sick and the imprisoned and the poor and so forth. So our time is up, um, and even a little bit over. So just finish, um, to just sum up what we've been talking about in these last, um, these last four Teishos. Um, as I said in the first one, not much is said in Zen about love. 
And I think this is because the emphasis that is put so strongly onto the, the non-duality, so what is prior to the duality of, of self and other. But as long as we do have these notions of self and other in our mind, and we all do because it's a very um, advanced stage to be in, to be completely free of the sense of self, as long as we do have this sense, then, then to um, make this effort to um, open our hearts to to others, and this is others of, of other sentient beings who are suffering as we are, also those who are um, have good fortune, to to rejoice in a, in the good fortune of our peers is perhaps even harder than than being compassionate. And to understand that this effort, this, this, this attitude, is absolutely essential and fundamental to the practice of the path. And that, that it's supported and nourished if we also open to receiving love from those around us and from our spiritual superiors, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Dharma ancestors. To, to recognize and remind ourselves that um, it's because of the efforts of the Buddha and his disciples that we are able to practice. It's because of their love, because of their um, aspiration to awaken for our sakes. And that we, the best way to acknowledge this that we can possibly um, do is to is to realize this dharma for ourselves. That's the best thank you there, there can be, possibly be. And that this, this whole flow of love and compassion will, will move easy, more easily if we are, are aware of what we can also receive. That it's not just a matter of, 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 of giving something out from ourselves, but more a sense of, of letting this, this energy which is, is swirling around us to pass through, that we can pass it on to others. And really, as, as Master Rinzai said, he mentioned this in the first talk, that, that the Buddha's ancestors live in us and through us. Every single person in this room has faith in the Dharma. And the evidence of that is that we're in this room practicing. And the more that we can give, give expression to, to love, the more we will strengthen that faith. And we'll, the, the more we will set the direction of our lives, our eternal life that isn't just confined to this, uh, this one wave on the ocean. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>